Right, we're continuing in 1 Corinthians. If you have a Bible, open up to the letter of 1 Corinthians. If you don't have one, you can grab one at the seat in front of you. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 to 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 to 9. You may have heard the phrase God-centered. I think I first heard that from John Piper. What he meant there is that your life should be all about God. Everything's about God. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. All things exist for God. Uh, Another way to say it negatively is it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's all about God. And of course, you see that thing all throughout Scripture. Everything is about God, and and we see it in this morning's text. Paul, just before he begins many, many chapters of rebuke, Uh, takes a moment to thank God for the people in the Corinthian church and then uh, points them to the God who will sustain them until Christ comes again. So he thanks God for God's people and then he reminds them that that very God is the only one who is faithful and will sustain them to the end. So God gets all the glory. He gets all the thanks. He does all the work of sustaining us until the end. So that's what we want to do this morning, is you consider the people around you, you consider your own life, who gave you everything that you are or have? God. So he gets all the thanks. And sometimes you may um, consider yourself, your talents and abilities. You might consider your life and sit back and go, I've done all right. We see this in Scripture. You have men and women who take stock of themselves and are very happy in themselves, and we call that pride. We give ourselves the glory instead of God. And even, we often neglect to remember at all that Christ is coming back, don't we? How many times this week did you think that? How many times this week did it ever come into your life that the God who came and died and rose ascended and reigns over all things, is coming back to set up his kingdom here. How many times did that ever go through your brain? Did that even affect your life this week, right? We're not nearly as centered on God as we need to be. Jonathan Edwards famously resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the world to come, in Christ's coming. So let's uh, consider that as we read this text. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you await the revealing of, the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your word. It is eternal, it's unfailing, and you have told us that you bless those who observe your word, who seek you with all their heart. And we know that we don't have this in of ourselves. We do not have it in of ourselves to observe your word, nor to seek you with all of our heart. And so even in this We're dependent on your grace, on your blessing. 
We need your spirit to come here that we might observe your word and seek you with all of our hearts. And so we ask for this grace now in Christ's name. Amen. If you read any of Paul's letters, he typically includes a section of thanksgiving. He'll think something about the people specifically that he intends to talk about in the rest of the letter. This isn't mere formality. Paul isn't just attending to some prescribed, prescribed way of writing a letter. He actually means that he's very thankful for them. This is God's word. These verses are inspired, just as every other word in, God, in, in the whole of Scripture. And Paul here uh, shows us how to give thanks to God for the church in Corinth. So Paul says, I give thanks to my God always. So as Paul, that doesn't mean Paul is every second of every day giving thanks to the church in Corinth. That means that as Paul has remembrances of the people in the church, he responds always with thanksgiving. Isn't that a good way to live? Wouldn't that be nice as you think about people to be grateful and thankful and not so grumpy? Now, Paul gives thanks just for something, uh, for something specific, not just general thanks, for specific things. Give thanks always because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. This isn't just thanking God for the grace of saving these folks. This grace here, and we'll see this especially later, like in chapter 12, this grace is the spiritual gifts, the abilities, the talents that God has given his people. And as Paul remembers them, he remembers God, the, the gifts, the talents, the abilities that God has graciously given them, and he's very thankful to God for that. And so Paul is very thankful to God because God is the giver of these gifts. And Paul even mentions to, in particular, in all speech and in all knowledge. Uh, even more so, this church, as we'll see throughout it, is it looks like one of the most spiritually gifted. They have all of the abilities in the world. They are very gifted. Uh, it says that they were enriched, um, that they are not lacking in verse 7 in any gift. And Paul picks out two that are particularly strong in them, this gifts of speech and in knowledge. Now, when we get later on, especially beginning in chapter 12, we'll get into these things uh, more. But it looks like Paul is thanking them for gifts in relation to knowing the truth of God's word and speaking them. In chapter 12, he'll mention prophecy and tongues and utterances of wisdom and knowledge and so on. So this church was very gifted in knowing God's word and in conveying it. They were good at speaking and preaching and teaching God's word. And so Paul is very thankful for, uh, to God for these gifts. And these gifts, in verse 5, are evidence that these people believe the gospel. Verse 5, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. What's confirming the testimony of Christ in them is the gifts. right? Because we know in Scripture that when someone is born again, God's Spirit takes up residence in him or her, and God gives gifts to the believer, abilities, uh, talents that are to be used for God's glory. And Paul looks at their giftedness and says, here's confirmation that you folks have believed the gospel. Now again, if you didn't take the time last week, I'd encourage you to go to Acts chapter 18. There you'll see the account of Paul coming to Corinth and preaching the gospel and how they believed it and all that went on there. As you remember, Paul spent a year and a half there. Paul knows these folks very well. He's more intimately aware of this church than maybe any of the other churches that he's worked with. And Paul here writes that the gifts working in them by God's grace are confirmation of the gospel. 
Now, this church is so gifted, as I said, that they lack nothing. They're not lacking in any gift. They have it all. And they lack nothing as they eagerly await the revealing of the coming of Christ. So, on the one hand, these folks have it all. On the other hand, they don't yet have the one thing. They, don't, they haven't yet seen Christ coming back. These folks are gold medal favorites in every spiritual gift category, but they still have to wait like the rest of us mere Christians for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now Paul is turning their focus a bit here. He's turning from thanking God for all the gifts to look at Christ. And so then he points them to God who confirmed them in the beginning. You see that, right? He, he in uh, verse 6, confirmed the testimony at the beginning. And now in verse 8, same word, will sustain or confirm them until the end. So Paul wants them to focus on God here. Not on themselves, not on their gifts, not on their faithfulness, but on God who is faithful. The God who confirmed them in the beginning in the gospel is the same one who sustained them without blemish until the end. Now that without blemish doesn't mean that they'll somehow attain sinless perfection in this age. This is reference to what the gospel does. Doesn't mean that you become functionally without sin. It just means that positionally in Christ, you are blameless, aren't you? Justified by his grace. Counted as absolutely righteous with the righteousness of Christ. So don't miss that here. Don't miss that word here. You, in Christ, not because you actually are yourself, but because of God's gift, he has counted you as utterly without blame. Why, why are you without blame? If somebody is without blame, why are they without blame? Because there's nothing to blame. God in Christ has taken away all of your sin and counted you with all of Christ's righteousness. <clears throat> and he will sustain you in that blamelessness, in that guiltlessness, until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is only and all because God is faithful. And that is only and all because God is faithful. So let's begin with this note of thanks. Paul is thankful to God. And one of the realities of being a Christian is that God has saved you from your grumpy ingratitude. Isn't that good news? You likely, by nature, unless you're just one of those bubbly, effervescent people, and we like you most of the time, except in the morning and after a long week and some evenings, um, he has rescued you from your grumpiness, from your ingratitude. Paul here is evidencing what's normal of a Christian, to be very grateful to God. Paul is very grateful to God. He's thankful to God. Why is he so thankful to God? Because of God's people. Look around you. We'll do this in communion, in the Lord's Supper. Every person seated next to you is a creature created by God in his image. And every person confessing Christ is an elect, chosen regenerated, justified, forgiven, being sanctified, soon to be glorified, child of the living God. 
to, to not give thanks is to commit the greatest kind of act of treasonous rebellion against God. You've all been at Christmas and you've given your child or friend a gift and they haven't responded with the thankfulness that you intended. I remember once uh, growing up, we would go to my grandma and grandpa's in Randolph for Christmas and my Aunt Melinda, don't uh, delete that from the thing. I, she probably won't listen, but <laughs> um, somebody got my name and I got socks. Like, you know, eight-year-old boy getting socks for Christmas. If you don't know, don't get an eight-year-old boy socks for Christmas. Uh, But God has saved us from that kind of grumpy ingratitude, hasn't he? And he's surrounded you with people on a weekly basis who are in Christ, and we are to be utterly grateful for them. God has richly given gifts to everybody in this church, and we are to thank God for them. This is is what I mean by being God-centered. Look around you. Look at the people seated right next to you. These are God's people. These are God's people given gifts to serve you. How could we not be thankful for this? So Paul gives thanks to God. He gives thanks to God for the grace in the lives of his people. So Paul gives thanks to God. That's the rightful direction, isn't it? God is the source of all that we have and are, and so we should give him thanks for everything. Now, this doesn't mean we should never thank people. This doesn't mean if somebody does something nice, you should say, oh, I thank God for you, but we never thank people. That's not true either. And if somebody says thanks to you, the simple response is you're welcome. Sometimes Christians get a little spiritual there, and they get uncomfortable when they're actually thanked, and and they like say, oh, it's all God. It's all God. To God be the good. That's good, but... A simple, you're welcome, is awful uh, welcomed as well. But we give thanks to God, and we give thanks because of the grace of God in the lives of God people. Now, this is just simply giving you a way to look at people. Right? This is the biblical um, way of looking, evaluating people. This is another way to say it. This is a theology of people in the Bible. When you look at people... It isn't that you don't have a way of thinking about them. It's whether or not your way of thinking about them is biblical. When you look at people, what's your theology of them? Especially Christians. What's your way of thinking about God's people? And here Paul is showing us the biblical way of thinking about God's people. The biblical way of thinking about God's people is to see them as they are. They are... In Christ Jesus, they have been enriched with gifts. The church is not lacking anything. And so the right response, if you're rightly thinking about God's people, is thanks. Another way to say it, the evidence that you don't see God's people rightly, you don't have a right theology of God's people, is that you're hardly ever thankful for them. See what I mean? If you're critical, unduly critical, there, there is a, we, we do need to be critical, but if you're unduly critical and it comes out in kind of harshness or rudeness or ungratefulness, hard, or you're not, not grateful hardly at all, the, the issue is behind it, you don't believe what God says about his people. 
And so every Christian who's around you is a human being created in God's image. They are a confessing Christian. They are an elect, called, born again, justified, forgiven, adopted, spirit-sealed, brother, sister in Christ, given gifts, useful and needed in the church. Later on, as I said in chapters 12 to 13, Paul will dig down into this. And he'll say that no Christian can say two things. No Christian can ever look at themselves and say, I'm not needed here. And I hear Christians do that all the time. I hear Christians kind of, I just don't see my part here. I'm not sure what use I am here. Or you see Christians who really don't do much in the church, and behind that is they're just thinking they're not much use in the church. And that is completely antithetical to the biblical thinking. Now, we can go overboard and have to do all kinds of tests and so on to figure out your spiritual gift. It's really not that complicated. What you enjoy doing, what you're good at is of use here. Now, the other thing you can never say is, you're not needed here. You can't say, I'm not needed here. And nor can you look at anybody else and say, you're not needed here. Sometimes we do that by thinking, that because you're not like me and my gifts or like me and my temperament or because you're not, don't seem as much use as so on and so on and so forth that you're just not needed here. And neither is true because in the Bible, the, the main thing is that they are God's and God has gifted them and they are of absolute need in the church. And so do you have a right biblical thinking of God's people in the church? When you look at them, what is your initial response? Is it thankfulness? Is it gratefulness to God? If not, it's simply because you might not see what you should see about who they are. It's not seeing who they are. And isn't it really enjoyable to be thankful and grateful for people? Isn't it so dreary and life-sapping to be so negative about people all the time? So grumpy and, oh, i got to sit next to that person. And you can apply this to every relationship in the church. In Hebrews 13, the members are exhorted to make it a joy for the elders and pastors to shepherd you. You're supposed to look at the elders and pastors and be thankful to God for it and figure out how can I go out of my way to make their eldering of smelly, uh, disagreeable sheep like me fun. That's your job. And and then elders are supposed to look at the sheep and say, how can I lay down my life for these folks bought by the blood of Christ? How can I pay careful attention to them? How can I pray for them? How can I minister God's word to them so they are growing in the Lord? I think that's just unpacking this. Members are supposed to look at other members and give thanks for them and figure out how can I pray for them? How can I serve them? What can I do for them? What can I do to make their walk before the Lord less burdensome? And that all flows from this right viewing of God's people. So Paul is thanking God because of the grace God has given them in Christ. And Paul notes such as the, that they were enriched in every way. They're not lacking in any gift in verse 7. But right after he says, you're not lacking in any gift, 
they're waiting for something. Now, if you're waiting for something, you don't have it, right? And so this is, I think, going to get to what's going to go on in this church in Corinth, because you'll know, as I've said before, Paul spends really the rest of the letter rebuking them. He doesn't have anything good to say about them after this. Right? And he wants to focus them completely on Christ. Paul says in verse 7, they lack nothing in regard to the spiritual gift. Baseball season's upon us. Spring training has started. Go Brewers. Uh, one of the t- terms used in reference to a very skilled player is a five-tool player. You ever heard that? A five-tool player is, some, is a player who has it all. He has great speed, great arm strength, top-tier fielding ability, hits for a high average, and hits for power. Five tools. They got it all. That's this church. This church has it all. This church has it all. They are as gifted as any church in the world at a time. But they're still waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think Paul is very intentionally turning from the crazy, lavish outpouring of gifts to something that they don't have yet. To the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. This might be a bad analogy. March Madness is upon us. Sorry for all the sports analogies, but tis the time of year. Um, there, There are coaches whose teams are usually very good. They're always ranked in the top 10. They're always going to make the round of 64, and they're consistently going to the lead eight and the final four and so on. And they're, they're always an expectation that they have it all. They have all the great players. They, they, and, and, and coaches of very successful teams always have to figure out a way to keep them humble and motivated and hungry, right? And, and those coaches will always say, yeah, they've attained it all, but, but the next win, right? Who cares? <laughs> who cares about how good you are? Who, who cares about how many wins you have? There's, there's another win. There's another game. There's another player to compete against. I, Paul is doing something like that here. This church, as you'll see later on, has become very arrogant. They're very selfish. They look at themselves. They're rich. They're intelligent, they're very gifted, and they are as selfish and arrogant as could be. But they, they don't have, they're waiting yet. They, they haven't attained it. They haven't arrived. They haven't gotten the goal yet. They're waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus. Another way to say it is, you might be tempted to place your significance and identity in what you do and what you have rather than in the coming of Christ. That could be another way of saying what Paul's doing here. If you ground your worth and your value in your performance at work and how your spouse looks at you and how you're doing as a parent and the amount of money in your bank account and your usefulness and giftedness and ability in comparison to somebody else, you'll find that you'll never measure up. But but Paul is saying it's not about you. It's not about that. It's about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is turning them away from themselves. 
And in these last three verses, he will leave no room for any self-focus. Because not only don't they have yet the thing that they want more than anything, Christ coming, they themselves are not sufficient to get them there. In the last two verses, there is nothing about anything in of themselves that will get them to Christ's coming. There is a, a catechism question, and I think it's the Baptist catechism for kids. If you want a good one to go through your kids with, that's one. I think the first question is, what is your only hope in life or in death? Remember that, guys? What is your only hope in life or in death? The simple answer is, my only hope in life or in death is God. That's what Paul is doing here. Right? So you're not lacking in anything, but you're waiting for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain you to the end? Who will do that? Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful. And that's where Paul is moving in everything right here to those three words. God is faithful. People have all the gifts, all the abilities, all the wealth, constantly think they're the faithful one. They're the enough one. They have it all. And Paul wants to turn them from that to Christ and his coming and that God is the only one who will get them there. My hope is in God. That's what Paul wants to do. Turn them to their hope in God. Now, you might know something in the Bible about the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That in Scripture is not often thought of as a fun and happy day. It's a terrible day. One of the things that happens when you get to a text like this is, in our day, let's go back to music. Right? One of the things that you'll hear as far as criticisms of the current contemporary music, you'll hear that it's shallow, it's repetitive, right? It's sentimental, and so on. If you were to go back and read the criticism of Isaac Watts, who is kind of the father of hymns, you would hear he's sentimental, he's shallow, and he's repetitive. <laughs> it's the same criticism, we just recycle them, right? right? Where was I going with that? I don't remember. I totally forgot how I was going to apply that. Oh, here. My, uh, my, how I criticize current contemporary music is if you take it song by song by song, they're largely fine. The lyrics are basically decent. They're theologically fine. Sometimes they're not as uh, accurate or as clear as you might like. Repetition, who cares? Have you read any of the Psalms? Some Psalms repeat the same line every other line. Come on, repetition is not the issue. The issue is that if you take all of the contemporary songs, they sing mainly about God's grace and love and totally ignore God's justice and wrath and the fear of God. You'll never find, you largely won't find any contemporary music that sings the whole counsel of God because in our age, we're so transfixed on the nice parts of God. We, we just ignore the scriptural text about Jesus coming in with a whip and turning over tables. Right? We, we ignore singing songs about Jesus in Revelation where his robe is drenched in the blood of his enemies. You don't see that sung very often. We just, we just ignore the great, glorious reality that God is great and we are not. God is fearful. 
and we ought to tremble. So when you come to a day of the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't have the impact that it should because you've largely been taught through singing and preaching and teaching to not fear God a bit. He's a friend. He's a jolly uh, Easter bunny in the sky raining down pastel candy eggs on all of his children because he loves you and he loves you and he loves you and he loves you. He does love you, but it's so sentimentalized. And you neglect totally the transcendent holiness of God that caused you to fear. And you read the Bible this way. And so here you come to what is the most fearful thing in Scripture, the day of Christ's coming, and you're kind of like, eh, eh. that'll be cool. I'll meet my buddy. We'll hang out finally. Jesus will get me coffee. Right? And we use Jesus like on a first-name basis, like we would Rod. Right? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I love Jesus. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is my homeboy. And we're so flippant. We're so silly. Do you not know who Jesus is? Do you not know what he's coming to do in that day? Have you read in Revelation the picture of what he's going to be like in that day? Do you not realize that people will cry out for mountains to fall on them and smush them to nothing so they don't have to face him? Don't you realize that in Psalm 2, Jesus will come with a rod and pound the nations and rulers to dust? That in Revelation, Jesus is shown riding a war horse coming to make roar with a robe dipped in blood, a sword thrusting out of his mouth, which he cut down the nations, treading them down in a wine press of the fury of the wrath of God. Right? And, and you're going to have to make it through that day. You're going to have to make it through that day. Right? You're going to have to make it through that day. You're going to have to make it through the wrath of God that will make Sodom and Gomorrah seem like a picnic. You're going to have to make it through the day when God will lay bare all of your motivations, all of your words, all of your deeds, everything. How are you going to make it through that day? The Corinthians were already beginning to experience persecution. They, they were already beginning to experience suffering for the sake of following Jesus Christ. And they were largely giving in to a culture and accommodating culture. Because they, they don't fear God. They fear what man can do. We have this problem today, don't you? Husbands, do you fear what your wife tells you to do more than what God tells you to do? Do we fear God? Parents let their children run their houses because they're afraid of their children. We don't fear God. And so we don't need God to be faithful. We don't need God to be the one sustaining us. For what? Big deal. Because every Sunday you've come to church and heard how good Jesus is and how kind Jesus is and how tender Jesus is and how homeboy Jesus is and how hippie, 70s, long-haired Jesus is. He's a nice guy. I'm a nice guy. It'll work out. Hogwash. 
you will need in the day of the Lord Jesus nothing from yourself. You will have nothing in of yourself to get you through that day. Nothing. What's going to sustain you? You need to be guiltless in that day. You need to be blameless in that day. You need to be absolutely not just without sin, but a total record of obedience to everything that God has ever written in that day. And here Paul grounds them in these three words, God is faithful. There's two big parts of that. There's God and faithful. Like, I, this might be a silly illustration, but I was thinking it might be God willing that we'll build a building out here. And let's say we had to do a bunch of excavating. Okay? And Phil, who's faithful, had a shovel. Phil's so faithful with a shovel. Right? And Roy Kelling had a big old backhoe. And Roy's faithful too. Who, who are you going to call? You want the shovel faithful guy or the big diesel backhoe faithful guy? Right? You, the, the key isn't faithful here. The key is who is faithful, right? It's God is faithful. It's God is faithful. Right? And you got you to gotta take your head and think of what does the Bible tell me about God? And he's faithful towards me. Everything that God is, as revealed in Scripture and in nature, all of that is bent towards me in faithfulness. This is the God who creates a universe by speech and sustains it. This is the God who orders all of human history from beginning to end according to his eternal wisdom, and it comes out perfectly. And all of that is faithful towards us. This is the God, while we were yet sinners, sent his son to die on a cross for our sins. And all of that mercy and justice is bent in being faithful to you. God is faithful. Do you need that even? Are you so high on yourself that you don't even need God to be faithful for you? Because you're pretty good. Because you got it figured out. Because you can live life according to your best thoughts and it's working pretty well. And then, of course, the good news is God is faithful. Isn't that those three precious words? God is faithful. What does that mean to be faithful? We, you and I will in our lifetimes meet very few actually faithful people that are very dependable, stable, trustworthy, reliable, motivated by genuine affections. We, we meet, it's very few to find loyal people in our age who, who have actual allegiance to you, won't turn on you, who sees it through until the end because they love you. They understand duty and loyalty and obligation. That's God. How do you know God is faithful? Well, look at nature. Right? Every year about this time, spring comes. Without fail. It might be a few weeks there. Why? Because God is faithful. 
He's the one who made this. We see the Wisconsin River continue to run with water. Why? Because God is faithful. He created a world that communicates to us the truth of who he is. And one thing you see there is faithful. But even more so, you see it in Scripture. Do you read in the Bible ever God beginning something and not finishing it? Ever. Can you think of one place in Scripture that God began something and didn't finish it? Right? Right. God began creation in day one and then said, eh, I'm tired of this. I'm going to try something else. No, he, he finished it. God told Noah to build an ark and put his family on it, and he brought them back off the ark. God came and rescued Israel from Egypt and delivered them to the promised land, right? God promised David that he would reign on a throne, and David did. And God promised from the beginning of Scripture until the end that we would find salvation through his son, and he has done it. His son's grave is empty. And if you need any more evidence of God's faithfulness than that, then it's simply, probably, you just don't believe. God is faithful. And because he is, in the day of Christ, you and I and all who have faith in him will be found blameless, guiltless, simply because God is faithful. Now, you might say, okay, so there's this thing in human history in the future. It might be 100 years. It might be 100,000 years, but it's, it's in the future. It's likely going to be after your death, Christ's return, right? I, I'm not setting dates here. It's going to be a while. And, and that seems so future. And this big cataclysmic world-changing event, Christ coming, is so future, so distant. And in a sense, it's pretty easy to go, all right, God is faithful for that day. No, no problem. But Monday is tomorrow. <laughs> and I've got to go home with these kids today. I've got to deal with this bad news I got today. And here's the thing. If God will be faithful to get you through the most difficult, terrible event in human history, blameless, can't, can't he deal with your marriage? Can't, can't he deal with your finances? Can't he deal with your health concerns? Or you're getting angry about something in the church. Isn't he faithful for that too? Isn't that enough? And it's only because you're in Christ. Look at verse 9. By whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, so you've got to connect this. You are in fellowship with his Son. You are in, we're going to do this in a minute, communion with his Son. You are, as you see in verse 4, in Christ Jesus. That preposition carries all of the meaning. You are in him. You are one with him. You are united with him. What did God do for his Son when he lay dead in a grave? He raised him from the dead. Right? You're in fellowship with that resurrected reigning son. What will he do for you? 
Well, here's what he'll do. Throughout your life, he'll do a whole bunch of little mini resurrections and then one big one. <laughs> you'll have a whole bunch of times in your life where you go, I just don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't think I can make it. I don't see a way out. I don't see a way in. I, it's done. Oh my gosh, the business is going to close. Our marriage is always going to be terrible. Our kids are always going to be hellions. Uh, uh, uh. And you'll despair of any hope in yourself and God will say, yeah, <laughs> resurrection time. Because God is faithful. Because God is faithful. Let's pray. We give you thanks, God, for being faithful. We ask that you dig this down deep in our lives. That we not only be thankful for your people, we would look to you as the only one who is faithful and will sustain us blameless until the end. And so, God, we ask that you would do it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so the charge is this. Take the truth that God is faithful and apply it to some specific aspect or thing in your life this week. Right? Live it. Apply it. Let it reshape how you're going to react. Ask God. It starts in prayer, right? God, you're faithful. Help me to live it, believe it, apply it to fill in the blank. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord.